Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We just recently restarted this program. We're in volume two, chapters 31 through 40. Students will typically read these chapters prior to class and then come to class and we actually read the chapters. Then I share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapters. This particular class is more like a study group rather than me sharing teachings and kind of having a full discourse and things like that. It's more about students coming to class and getting help with the questions that they have. If you haven't read these chapters and you're joining us in this class perhaps for the first time, it's okay because we're going to be reading these chapters in the actual class. And like I mentioned, I'll be sharing teachings and then opening up to any questions. The way that we start our class is we start with a brief meditation just to kind of help prepare the mind for the class itself because this is really helpful to be able to clear out the mind and prepare it for actually learning. You'll actually be able to retain the teachings for longer periods of time and then actually apply them in your life through your daily practice. So I'd like to invite you all to join for meditation. If you'd like to take a seated position, standing or lying, these usually work really good for online learning. You would like to just get the lower body and the hands and arms nice and comfortable where there's no muscles that are engaged. And then the upper body should be nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Then you just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath. I'm going to ease us into meditation with some chanting. If you know these chants, you're welcome to join along. And then afterwards, I'll be back with some more guidance to help you further in meditation. Sang Namami 
Establishing your breath. Your breath isn't going to match up to the guidance that I provide, but wherever you get to it, I'm here to just remind you to breathe in through the nose and to exhale out through the nose. Breathing in and out. Once the breath is established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Whenever you observe that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to label the thought, observe it, analyze it, or try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you notice the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're attending on YouTube, Facebook, on Zoom, if you're watching this on the replay, I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. We're going to be covering chapters 31 through chapters 40 of volume 2. And Tonka mentioned that she was going to be interested to read the odd numbers, and I'll go ahead and read the even numbers. And then after each chapter is read, then I'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. So I'll just go ahead and turn it over to you, Tonka, let you go ahead and read this first chapter. Thank you. Chapter 31, a strong post or pillar is a designation of mindfulness. And how monk is there restraint? Here, having seen a form with the eye, having heard a sound with the ear, having smelled an odor with the nose, having tasted a flavor with the tongue, having touched a physical object with the body, having recognized a mental object with the mind, 
Among is not among is not intent upon pleasing form and not repelled by the displeasing form. He resides having set up mindfulness of the body with a measureless mind, and he understands as it really is that liberation of mind, liberation of wisdom, wherein those evil unwholesome states are elimination without remainder. It is in such a way that there is restraint. Suppose monks, a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would bind them to a strong post or pillar. Then those six animals would with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in the direction of its own feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way, thinking, let me enter the ant hill. The crocodile would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way, thinking, let me fly up into the sky. The dog would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a village. The jackal would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. The monkey would pull another way, thinking, let me enter a forest. Now, when these six animals become worn out and fatigued, they would stand close to the post or pillar. They would sit down there, they would lie down there. So two monks, when a monk has developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye does not pull in the direction of agreeable form or a disagreeable form repulsive. The ear does not pull in the direction of agreeable sound nor are disagreeable sounds repulsive. The nose does not pull in the direction of agreeable odor, nor are disagreeable odors repulsive. The tongue does not pull in the direction of agreeable flavor, nor are disagreeable flavors repulsive. The body does not pull in the direction of agreeable physical object, objects, nor are disagreeable physical objects repulsive. The mind does not pull in the direction of agreeable mental objects, nor are disagreeable mental objects repulsive. It is in such a way that there, there is restraint. A strong post or pillar, this monk is a designation for mindfulness directed to the body. Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body, make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourself. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is talking about restraining the mind and pulling the mind back. And that's a big portion of training the mind. We're doing that in meditation with breathing mindfulness meditation that you're focused on the breath. And when the mind moves off the breath, you're cutting that off and bringing the mind back to the breath. This is restraining the mind and pulling it back. The Buddha here is talking about the six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body in the mind. This is what the mind is longing, yearning through. It's using these six sense bases in order to pull in content 
through these senses. And then if there's a craving in the mind, the mind's either going to see that as agreeable contact and experience these pleasant feelings, or it's going to see it as disagreeable contact and then experience painful feelings. This is all due to sensual desire, that fetter or pollution or taint in the mind, the defilement of sensual desire. So one needs to eliminate this sensual desire in order to get the mind to be content and peaceful and joyful all the time. Because as long as the mind has craving, desire, attachment, where it's longing and yearning through the sense spaces in order to acquire the objects of its affection, it's going to get those conditioned pleasant feelings then it's going to experience these conditioned painful feelings because the condition that the mind is basing its happiness excitement elation thrill euphoria or whatever on it's impermanent so since that condition is impermanent the mind's now going to move to this painful feeling because the pleasant feeling can't be permanent as long as it's being based on some impermanent condition so because the mind is basing its inner feelings like happiness, excitement, and others on some impermanent condition. It's only a matter of time before that condition changes, and now the mind moves to this painful feeling of anger, sadness, frustration, or others. And the Buddha is explaining this as six animals pulling in opposite directions. And this post or this pillar is your mindfulness, your awareness of mind. Specifically, he's talking about the bodily sensations because mindfulness is all about the four foundations of mindfulness, having awareness of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. This is taught as part of the group learning program in volume one of the book series where in chapter five, I describe mindfulness in detail and go into talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. Because when you observe those bodily sensations in daily life, it's important to cut off and let go of any arising discontent feelings. Those bodily sensations are an indication to you that the mind's about to experience a feeling of discontentedness. So if you can cut it off as a bodily sensation, you're restraining the mind, you're controlling the mind. The mind is becoming disciplined. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here is this post or this pillar. What questions you guys have on this particular chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions, so I'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is 32. I'll go ahead and read this one and then teach and open up to any questions that you guys have. The title of the chapter is Dwelling and Breathing Mindfulness Meditation. Monks, that monk gains at will, without trouble or difficulty, that concentration through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And what concentration is it through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind? It is, monks, when concentration by mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation has been developed and cultivated that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. In how, monks, is concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation developed and cultivated so that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind? Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, 
or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him, just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe in. He trains thus, calming the bodily sensations, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing joy, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mental activity, I will breathe out. He trains thus, calming the mental activity, I will breathe in. He trains thus, calming the mental activity, I will breathe out. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, experiencing the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, gladdening the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, concentrating the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, liberating the mind, I will breathe in. He trains thus, liberating the mind, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on fading away, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on fading away, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on elimination, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on elimination, I will breathe out. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is, monks, when concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, has been developed and cultivated in this way, that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body, and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. I too, monks, before my enlightenment, while I was still unawakened, but intent on awakening, not yet fully enlightened, generally dwelt in this dwelling. While I generally dwelt in this dwelling, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued, and my mind, by not clinging, was liberated from the taints. Therefore, monks, if a monk aspires, may neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued, and may my mind, by not clinging, be liberated from the taints. This same concentration of mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, should be closely attended to. 
All right, so here the Buddha is describing this dwelling of breathing mindfulness meditation where you can train the mind to arise this mindfulness or awareness of mind in this concentration, the ability to focus on a single object. These are two qualities of mind that you're developing in breathing mindfulness meditation as well as eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And then as you develop these through exercising the mind in meditation, you then practice them in daily life and this is part of the path to enlightenment. As part of the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path, you would need to develop right mindfulness and right concentration so that you can apply right effort to cut off and let go of any unwholesome qualities and arise certain wholesome qualities in your daily life. Once you've trained your mind to enlightenment, the Buddha is describing how there's no shaking or trembling that occurs in the body or the mind because you've liberated the mind from craving, desire, attachment. There's no more craving, desire, attachment in the enlightened mind. So therefore, there's no shaking up of the mind and there's no shaking up of the body. Then he goes into explaining how to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation. This is his instructions on how to actually perform breathing mindfulness meditation. And remember, as you're learning the words of the Buddha, you're understanding the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. So understanding what he taught is very important. So here he describes going to a forest and going to a foot of a tree because that's what he did during his actual training. And he also talks about this empty hut. So nowadays, you may decide to go to the forest or to the foot of a tree or an empty hut, or you may just do this in your living room or your bedroom or at a temple, in a park or some other location. And you might decide to do this sitting down, even though there's four individual positions of seated, lying, standing, and walking, you typically start with the seated position and start developing that. And if you sit on the floor, you might cross your legs, doing that lightly so that there can be circulation flowing through the legs. You're not interested in impeding circulation. And then you would like to straighten up the body or bring the body to erectness. What this does is keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. You're not interested in the body being real uptight and rigid because that's going to create an overactive mind, but you're also not interested in the upper body being slouched because this is going to produce a sluggish or complacent mind. So you'd like to straighten the body and bring some erectness to the upper body to keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation so that you can do the actual work of training the mind and meditating. Then the Buddha talks about setting up mindfulness in front of you. This is bringing the awareness to the mind, where if you just came in and just plopped down into meditation, you wouldn't have the awareness of mind to actually benefit you through training the mind. So you'd like to start bringing this awareness to the mind. I use chanting in order to accomplish that, but there's other ways to do that as well. So you would like to develop this awareness of the mind as you're easing the mind into meditation. And then with that awareness of mind, you start breathing in and breathing out. This is establishing the breath and start getting the awareness of the mind focused on the breath, which the Buddha instructs here where he says, breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long or breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. What he's referring to here is bring your awareness of the mind to the breath and focus on the breath. Then he talks about experiencing the whole body 
and calming the bodily sensations. Because as you're meditating, you've brought the mind to the breath. And now if you become aware of anything that's going on in the actual body, the Buddha is describing to calm that bodily sensation. So if you're noticing that you're having a little itch in the body, you should understand that that's impermanent. It's going to arise, it's going to change, and it's going to fade away. When you're first starting, you might need to go ahead and itch that. And maybe that was like five seconds or something like that. But over time, you would like to elongate this longer and longer and longer, maybe eight seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, where eventually you can get to a whole period of time where you observe that the itch has arisen, it's changed, and then it fades away and it no longer exists. This is helping you to train the mind to know that there is a bodily sensation and to be able to cut it off and let it go because you're going to need that outside of meditation in order to train the mind to eliminate discontentedness. While you're in meditation, you might experience this joy and peacefulness. But as that's coming into the mind, the Buddha is saying, breathe in and breathe out. Essentially be unaffected by that joy and peacefulness arising in the mind. Sometimes you observe that joy and peacefulness coming into the mind and you can kind of indulge in that and kind of follow that with the mind. But instead, where you see that joy and peacefulness coming up in the mind, just stay focused on the breath allow that joy and peacefulness to permeate in the mind. That's completely normal. Then, as you experience any mental activity, like the mind is moving off the breath, the Buddha is saying, calm that mental activity. Basically, cut that off and let it go. So where you experience this mental activity where there's a thought coming up, the mind moves off the breath, calm that, cut that off and bring it back to the breath. As you're experiencing the mind, you might notice that there's this gladdening of the mind where the mind becomes joyful or gleeful or delighted because as you're experiencing the changes and the transformation in the mind you might see this starting to occur stay concentrated with the mind staying focused on that breath that's very important that singleness of mind and then as you do in your eliminating craving desire attachment the mind becomes more and more liberated from the craving desire attachment as you're in meditation, if there's a thought or if the mind goes to the past or the future or you have that itch that I talk about, be sure that you understand that these things are all impermanent. Understand that anything that comes up into the mind in terms of thoughts or ideas or anything like this about the past or the future, it's all impermanent. So as this is occurring, maybe you hear a sound, you have a thought or something like this. Be sure you remember that it's going to fade away because of his impermanence. And your goal is to eliminate any discontentedness that might arise, any annoyance or frustration or anything like that through training the mind to let go. That's what you're interested in doing. So these are the Buddha's instructions as you're going through and meditating. He's not telling you to necessarily do each one of these things and teaching you to say these phrases in your mind, but instead, be aware of what your goal is in the meditation. And this is what I'm guiding you to do is that as thoughts come up in the mind, cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. Understanding that these thoughts are impermanent and gaining this inner discipline or control of the mind through training the mind to let go. And as you do this, the mind becomes more concentrated because now you're training the mind to focus on a single object like the breath. And as you cultivate breathing mindfulness meditation and you're practice and then you're training the mind through your daily life of having awareness of mind and being able to focus on a single thing at a time and not doing multiple things 
then what you're going to notice is over time as the craving desire attachment is eliminated from the mind you won't experience any shaking of the body or the mind this is all eliminated because there's no more craving desire attachment in the mind and what the buddha explains is that as he trains his mind this way that he noticed that his mind doesn't become tired or it doesn't have this fatigue because early in your practice when you're carrying around craving desire attachment it's easy for the mind to become fatigued and tired but as you train your mind to let go and lay down the burden of carrying around craving desire attachment you'll notice that the mind will be uplifted it won't be tired it won't be burdened it won't be bogged down if you get to the end of your day you're just utterly exhausted from what you've been doing throughout the day this is because the mind is constantly craving and craving and craving. And in some cases, it gets what it wants. It gets pleasant feelings. In other situations, it doesn't get what it wants. And those painful feelings are quite challenging to deal with. So your mind might feel bogged down due to this burden of carrying around craving, desire, attachment. But as you're training the mind in breathing mindfulness meditation and letting go, you won't experience this fatigue of the mind, nor the body, that you'll feel uplifted and light. The mind will be tranquil and the body will be tranquil. And this is all occurring through non-clinging. By training the mind to not cling and hold on, you can get liberated from the taints. The taints are pollutions or the fetters, the 10 individual things that the Buddha discovered about the mind that need to be eliminated. These are pollutions that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. And when you eliminate those from the mind, then it can be liberated from discontent feelings. And then the Buddha encourages you here in the last paragraph that if somebody is interested in eliminating the fatigue of the body and the fatigue of the mind, then you should essentially choose to practice breathing mindfulness meditation. He says you should closely attend, meaning you should be diligent and dedicated and not complacent and be sure that you're diligently developing your breathing mindfulness meditation practice because that's what's going to eliminate the fatigue of the body and the mind and even talks about the eyes here as well so what questions do you guys have on this chapter you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand in zoom electronically and ask any questions that you like i see tonka has her hand up if you'd like to go ahead tonka thank you teacher david uh, to me, re reflecting on letting go, reflecting on impermanence sounds um, like uh, it's, it's a longer time because we learned so far to cut everything off, whatever arises, just to cut it off. But when, when someone says reflecting, to me, it means spending time thinking about that. So here, my understanding was that uh, meditation and reflection were combined together that's why I, I i need to clarify this because we don't really uh talk too much about reflecting and i was wondering if it's necessary to designate time just for reflection or we can meditate and reflect at the same time okay so 
There's reflection that we do outside of meditation, where you sit with your thoughts, you try to understand what's going on in your life, you look over your life, things that are going well, you would like to continue to do those, continue to make those wise decisions. Things that aren't going so well, you would like to make decisions to improve this so that you can make wiser decisions and improve certain aspects of your life. This would be reflection outside of meditation, kind of looking inward and discovering the wholesome things, the wise things, and then the unwholesome and unwise things that are occurring in your life and improving those or supporting the wholesome and continuing to allow those to happen. You can also reflect on impermanence outside of meditation too, being sure that you deeply understand impermanence by looking around the world around you and seeing all these different things that are impermanent. Here, when the Buddha is describing and we're using this word reflecting on impermanence, what he's essentially saying is be sure that you understand impermanence so that when you're in meditation and there's some thought that comes up in the mind, you understand that that's impermanent, but you remain focused on the breath, that you cut off and let go of any thoughts and bring the mind back to the breath. So you don't need to literally be in meditation and doing reflection. That's not what the Buddha is describing here. He's essentially helping you to understand, to be sure you understand impermanence so that your mind isn't clinging and holding on to any thoughts that are coming up in the mind. Because if you don't understand impermanence, then when thoughts come up in the mind in meditation, the mind might have a tendency to hold on to those and cling to those. But if you understand impermanence, then when you're in meditation and a thought comes up and the mind moves off the breath, you'll just automatically know to cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. There's no need to sit in meditation and actually do reflection. That's not the purpose of what you're actually doing. Instead, you're focusing on the breath. That's what the Buddha is describing here is being sure that you continue to stay focused on the breath, knowing that all these thoughts and ideas and other things coming up in the mind are impermanent. Okay, so it's more just to notice it, not to spend time thinking about that, just notice it and then cut it off. Right, so if say you're in meditation and things are fairly quiet when you start, and then say, you know, there's somebody next to you in, in your home and there's some loud music or somebody's yelling or hollering or something, and you're in meditation and you hear that sound, the mind might automatically go to irritation or annoyance or anger or something like that. But if you understand impermanence, when you hear that sound in your meditation, you already know that that yelling or that music or what have you is impermanent. And all you're doing is when your mind notices that sound, you're just cutting it off, letting it go and coming back to the breath rather than sitting there and being irritated or annoyed or something else like that. So knowing impermanence, understanding that, then you can just reside, continuing to focus on the breath, cutting off and letting go of anything that the mind is trying to cling to and any kind of discontent feelings that might be arising, the mind can just know to stay focused on the breath, cut off and let go of anything that arises in the mind. Okay, thank you. And maybe one more question. I believe it, it was explanation after this chapter when you said that uh, our body can get tired but not fatigued. So I wondered if you can explain the difference between being fatigued and tired. Yeah, so an individual that is enlightened can get sleepy. They won't get tired. They'll get sleepy where it's time to go to sleep and the mind needs to go to sleep. But the body itself won't be tired or fatigued. 
the sleepiness is just because the mind needs to sleep. But an enlightened being isn't doing things with craving, desire, attachment. So they're not chasing after things. So they're not going to experience fatigue in the body or fatigue in the mind either. And they're also not complacent and lethargic and lacking motivation and unenthused and lacking initiative or willingness to do something, which the mind can feel fatigue there and the body can feel fatigue there too. The mind has been so fine-tuned to the middle that the mind and the body are functioning optimally. So the mind will get sleepy where it needs to sleep, but there won't be any fatigue or tiredness that sets in. Okay, thank you, teacher David. Mm -hmm. And this all relates back to this burden of craving, desire, attachment, that as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the mind's going to be on either side of the middle. It's very tiring and very much going to create fatigue in the mind and the body by carrying around that burden of craving. But when you lay that burden down, the mind is enlightened. You're no longer having craving. That's why the mind and the body are completely light and uplifted and tranquil and peaceful. And there can be sleepiness, but not fatigue or tiredness in an enlightened mind. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. And also Max offered to read the next chapter. Okay, perfect. Are we ready to move on? There's no questions in Facebook or YouTube? Yes, I think so. Okay. So we'll go ahead and move to chapter 33. Uh, breathing, mindfulness, meditation, the Tathagata's dwelling. Monks, if wanderers of other communities ask you, in what dwelling, friends, did the perfectly enlightened one generally dwell during the rains retreat? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus. During the rains residence, friends, the perfectly enlightened one generally resided in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, monks, mindful I breathe in, mindful I breathe out. When breathing in long, I know I breathe in long. When breathing out long, I know I breathe out long. When breathing in short, I know I breathe in short. When breathing out short, I know I breathe out short. I know, experiencing the whole body, I will breathe in. I know, experiencing the whole body, I breathe out. I know, calming the body sensations, I breathe in. I know, calming the bodily sensations, I breathe out. I know, experiencing joy, I will breathe in. I know, experiencing joy, I will breathe out. I know, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe in. I know, experiencing peacefulness, I will breathe out. I know, experiencing the mental activity, I will breathe in. I know, experiencing the mental, mental activity, I will breathe out. I know, calming the mental activity, I will breathe in. I know, calming the mental activity, I will breathe out. I know, experiencing the mind, I will breathe in. I know, experiencing the mind, I will breathe out. I know, gladdening the mind, I will breathe in. I know gladdening the mind, I will breathe out. I know concentrating the mind, I will breathe in. I know concentrating the mind, I will breathe out. I know liberating the mind, I will breathe in. I know liberating the mind, I will breathe out. I know reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe in. I know reflecting on impermanence, I will breathe out. I know reflecting on fading away, I will breathe in. 
I know reflecting on fading away, I will breathe out. I know reflecting on elimination, I will breathe in. I know reflecting on elimination, I will breathe out. I know reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. I know reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. If anyone, monks, speaking rightly could say of anything, it is no, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. It is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, that one could rightly say this. Monks, those monks who are trainees, who have not attained their mind's ideal, who dwelling, aspiring for the unsurpassed, sorry, security from bondage, enlightenment, for them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to the destruction of the taints. Those monks who are arahants, whose taints are destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, those completely liberated through final knowledge, wisdom, for them concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to a peaceful dwelling in this very life and to mindfulness and clear comprehension. If anyone, monks, speaking rightly could say of anything, it is, no, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling, is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, that one could rightly say this. All right. Thank you, Max. So here, mm -hmm. the Buddha is explaining what he, he's doing during the rains retreat. During the lifetime of the Buddha, in the word Tathagata, this is the word that the Buddha used to refer to himself, he's instructing and guiding his ordained practitioners to stay in one location. Because by staying in one location, this ensures that the fields of the farmers aren't destroyed. During the rainy season, the fields get very soft. And nowadays, we have streets and sidewalks, and we have very clear markers of where people's property begins and where it ends. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they didn't have these clear delineation of streets and roads and sidewalks the way that we do now. Oftentimes, as people traveled from town to town, they would walk through people's fields. And if all these different ordained practitioners, thousands of people that were studying with the Buddha were to walk through the fields during the rainy season, this would damage the crops. And then it would be hard for people to eat because there wouldn't be the harvest that is needed in order to sustain the population. So this period of time, three months per year, he guided his ordained practitioners to stay in one place, either a temple or people's house or wherever it is that they're choosing to stay, they stay in those places. And of course, during that time, they work on their own mind, 
all throughout the year, they're training their mind. But during this period of time where they're not walking around, it gives them extra time to train their mind. And they're also sharing teachings during that time as well because people are coming to them to learn. So the Buddha is explaining if wanderers of other communities, because these other communities were other people who were learning with other teachers. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple people who were teaching and claiming that they had attained enlightenment and it was their teachings that led to enlightenment, where the Buddha knew it was his teachings that lead to enlightenment. And these other students that were learning with other teachers, they might have been interacting with the students of the Buddha. And the Buddha is saying, if you encounter any of these people and they ask you, you know, where am I going to reside or where am I going to dwell during the rainy season? What you should say is that I'm going to dwell in breathing mindfulness meditation because that's a peaceful dwelling. That's this place where the mind can essentially be trained to develop this concentration and actually get to enlightenment. So this is a way for him to teach and help people to know what he's doing on a regular ongoing basis is breathing mindfulness meditation. And then he explains how to do it, which is very similar to what we just read in the previous chapter. And here towards the end, what he's describing is saying, yes, this is an excellent dwelling, this breathing mindfulness meditation. And what he's saying that it does is for those monks and trainees who have not yet attained the mind's ideal. The mind's ideal would be enlightenment. So those who have not attained enlightenment, who dwell aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage. Once the mind attains enlightenment, it has this security, it has this protection. Prior to that, the mind is still bound up. It's still bound up with these 10 fetters, like it's being chained into this cycle of rebirth and chained into the cycle of discontentedness. So this unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment is training the mind to be liberated and get to the point where it's no longer experiencing these strong feelings. So if anybody would like to acquire that and attain that, the Buddha is saying the way to do that is through breathing mindfulness meditation because when it is developed and cultivated, training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation, it leads to the destruction of the taints. These are the pollutions or defilements. These are the fetters, those 10 individual pollutions of mind that the Buddha taught to eliminate. All of his teachings are guiding you to eliminate those 10 pollutions in one way or another. Breathing mindfulness meditation is one of the primary things that we do in order to train the mind to eliminate these pollutions or these fetters. And having destroyed the taints or eliminated from the mind, those monks who are arahants, an arahant is someone who is actually enlightened. There's four individual stages of enlightenment. In the fourth stage, we call arahant. This is someone who's eliminated all the ten fetters. And the Buddha explains that here, whose taints are destroyed, right? Those monks who are arahants, whose taints are destroyed, meaning they've eliminated the ten fetters who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done. Because in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to apply energy and effort. You're going to need to have determination and dedication and diligence to continue to do the work on a consistent long-term basis. There's going to be periods of time where you do, you know, do less work and there's other times where you do more work. But over the course of multiple years, you're going to need to stay dedicated and do what has to be done in order to train the mind and lay down this burden. The burden is the craving, desire, attachment. 
That's what you're working to eliminate through breathing mindfulness meditation. You're arising mindfulness and concentration, and you're training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And that's called laying down the burden because you're no longer burdened or hindered by this craving, desire, attachment. Reaching the goal and completely destroying the fetters, those completely liberated through final knowledge. So once you get to enlightenment, the mind has attained what's called final knowledge. Up until then, the mind still has this ignorance or unknowing of true reality because it has all these different fetters. The mind doesn't understand the path to enlightenment. It hasn't yet done the intellectual learning, the reflection to independently verify the teachings, and then eradicate the ignorance. So the mind has not yet attained final knowledge when it's in the unenlightened state. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you will have liberated the mind through the wisdom that you cultivate on this path. And now it will no longer be shaken up because you have eliminated the 10 fetters. And this is called liberation through final knowledge or final wisdom. This is where the mind, when you're on the path at the beginning and as you're making your way through, it can struggle. It can have difficulties because the mind lacks the wisdom of what it needs in order to get to enlightenment. But by the time the mind acquires final knowledge and actually gets to enlightenment, you'll be practicing these teachings effortlessly. Up until then, there's some challenges, there's some struggles, there's some difficulties along the way, but that's where the mind's cultivating the most wisdom when you're experiencing those struggles and difficulties and challenges. It would be unwise to run away from those challenges and those struggles. Instead, I would encourage you to walk towards them because that's where you're going to cultivate the most wisdom and produce the most benefits. But by the time the mind gets to enlightenment, you're practicing these teachings effortlessly. It's no longer a struggle or a challenge for you. And you've been cultivating this concentration through breathing mindfulness meditation. And the Buddha is explaining how as you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and cultivating and developing that, it leads to this peaceful dwelling in this very life, which is the enlightened mental state, which in order to get to that enlightened mental state, there would need to be mindfulness or awareness of mind, particularly those four foundations of mindfulness. And there we need to be concentration or clear comprehension. This is another way that the Buddha describes concentration or right concentration. Being able to focus on a single object and practice singleness of mind. Not having a muddled mind where the mind's all over the place, but very clear, very focused, having concentration and clarity of mind. And the Buddha is saying, okay, if anybody should say that, you know, this is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, that this is where the Buddha resided during the rains retreat in breathing mindfulness meditation, then that's the true place where the Buddha resided. Sure, he was in this particular temple or he was at this person's house or what have you, but where he really resided is in breathing mindfulness meditation. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's see, it looks like Tonka has her hand up in Zoom if we would like to just go to Tonka and then it looks like Max is right after that. Okay, we have a question on YouTube. Babani is asking, are, are three poison roots, five hindrances and 10 feathers, the things to be eliminated to purify the mind? Yes, yeah, so all of the things that you mentioned, like the three unwholesome roots, or we also call them the three poisons or three fires, the five hindrances, 
and then ultimately the 10 fetters. This is just another way to describe the 10 fetters. The Buddha teaches in layers. In the Four Noble Truths, he teaches about craving, desire, attachment. That's like the first layer to get a real snapshot or a real glimpse of what the problems in the unrelated mind are. Then he teaches the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, which now we talk about craving, anger, and ignorance. So your understanding of the problem in the unenlightened mind expands and there are certain solutions that he delivers there. And then he goes into even deeper detail when he talks about the 10 fetters. All of the things that he taught lead to elimination of the 10 fetters in one way or another. And then when he talks about the five hindrances, the vast majority of those four out of the five are actually part of the fetters there's one that's actually not part of the fetters which is complacency and that needs to be eliminated so when he talks about the different aspects of the path he's maybe talking about the three poisons in one way because it's a certain level of detail in a certain amount of solutions that he's providing there then when he talks about the 10 fetters this is a more detailed description of what's really plaguing the unenlightened mind and then when he's talking about hindrances he's going to talk about them as the five hindrances and talk about them in a different way but all of these come to the 10 fetters in one way or another so you would need to understand these in different ways but it's the 10 fetters that you're eliminating and eliminating the 10 fetters you will have eliminated the five hindrances, you will have eliminated the three unwholesome roots or the three fires or those three poisons. So what I encourage people to do when they're first getting started is to focus on the Four Noble Truths, which includes the three universal truths. Focus on the Eightfold Path, which is the core central teaching. You'll need to know that inside and out, backwards and forwards, using the words of the Buddha, not other people's words, but the words of the Buddha. And then the five precepts, again, using the words of the Buddha because those plug into the Eightfold Path and give you a further understanding of the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path. And of course, all the while you're developing your meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. As you're getting that really well established and you're developing it more and more, you should notice that the mind is starting to experience the jhanas as the mind is starting to clean up the life practice. You'll start getting these glimmers or these flickers of what enlightenment is like through the various qualities of the jhanas starting to arise in the mind. And the Buddha describes this in the Eightfold Path as part of right concentration, those qualities of mind that you'll experience. At that point, as you're starting to experience the jhanas, that's when you more directly start focusing on the 10 fetters. Everything that you're doing with the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, Loving Kindness Meditation, all that is leading to the elimination of the Ten Fetters. But once you have enough of that initial foundational practice put together and you're starting to experience the jhanas, this is an indication for you that you're starting to put together the path really well because you're starting to get glimpses of the qualities of mind that are starting to rise in the jhanas. And that's the time to more directly focus on the 10 fetters. Up until then, you can be studying the fetters and be aware of them. And when you see things like arrogance and pride or judgment of others starting to arise in the mind, this is part of the higher fetter of conceit. You can cut that off and let that go. But the real work of eliminating the 10 fetters starts to really occur 
after you've already got the Eightfold Path really well developed and under your belt, because you'll need that in order to train the mind to let go of these fetters, because these fetters are fairly deeply rooted in the mind, and you wouldn't be able to just eliminate them off the bat. You kind of need this practice of the Eightfold Path to include meditation, to kind of soften up the mind and make it ready and make it prepared to eliminate and let go of these fetters. And those jhanas are there, helping you see that you're putting together the Eightfold Path well. So you should start seeing those qualities of mind arising, indicating that, okay, now it's time to start focusing on the fetters. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm-hmm. All right, Max, looks like it's over to you. Thank you, sir. Uh, so I guess my question is that I uh, know friends that uh, maybe struggling or whatnot and are like turning away from their problems. And, um, so the best way to help them is basically asking them if they need help. And then maybe, um, like would meditation, you know, ask me like asking them, Hey, would you like to maybe meditate with me? That may help calm your mind or something like that and then offering them um like uh one of your books or or something without uh expectation or uh like a um yeah a desire for you know whatever their choice is is you know done without craving okay so it's important and you're kind of cluing in on this is that you focus your practice on developing your own mind oftentimes when we first are learning these teachings or even after we get into six months a year two years into this and we start seeing all these improvements the mind you know wants to go out and help other people so be sure that you always retain the focus on developing your own practice and training your own mind because that's going to be good for you for those people close to you and all of humanity by you getting to enlightenment if the mind is craving to help others or it gets bogged down in helping others then it's going to impede its own progress to actually be getting to enlightenment so always stay focused on developing your own practice if you've got that well underway and you see people that are having challenges and difficulties you can offer them support you can offer them guidance there's lots of different ways to do that you mentioned a few of them there's no one right way there's no one wrong way unless you're doing it with craving desire attachment if you're longing and yearning if you're wanting if you're expecting people to learn these teachings then you're going to be discontent when they don't so if you'd like to offer them assistance or offer them help or introduce them to meditation or give them a book or send them a link in a video you can do this a few times but if they say no then you know they've already decided that they're not interested in it and if you continue to push them and pressure then this is your own craving so it's important to offer to ask to suggest to maybe encourage or invite but once you've done that and they've said no then that's your indication that hey they're not interested and there's going to be people in the world that just aren't willing or able or interested to do the work and they're just going to continue to experience discontent feelings for the rest of this life and then they're going to experience rebirth and maybe at some point in the future they may encounter these teachings but if we pressure 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 think about what we do if somebody tries to pressure us 
you're going to dig your heels in and you're going to be resentful and you're going to reject whatever it is that somebody's pressuring you to do. So you're not interested in doing that. And I know that that's not what you're interested in, but I just would like to share that with you and anybody else who's learning is that always stay focused on your own practice. That's the number one goal. And as you're gaining more wisdom, if you'd like to offer assistance to people, you can, but just be sure that you're doing that without any craving, desire, attachment. Okay, so kind of what I understand from this is that, um, like, so me focusing on my own practice um, and, you know, my as my practice develops, others around me will realize or or, or see, oh, hey, like, look at Max. He's, he seems very peaceful. What's going on there? And, um, you know, they'll on, on their, in their uh, own free will will um, maybe ask how, like, why are you so peaceful? And how can I be as peaceful as you are? Exactly. Is that correct? Exactly. When people are asking you for it, that's like the best situation because if you're focused on your mind and you're getting closer to peacefulness, closer to joy, you're developing concentration and focus and deep memory and clarity of mind, people are going to see these qualities about you in your work environment, in your home life, in your friends and family. They're going to see you're being more delightful, you're being more joyful, you're being more bright. There's nothing that shakes up your mind as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. And people are going to be like, whoa, you know, they're going to be around you and they're going to be experiencing the same things you're experiencing. And they're going to see their minds all shaken up, but yours isn't. And they're going to be curious. And if they become curious and say, hey, what are you doing? Like, how did you do that? That customer was so rude and impolite or that boss, you know, was so harsh and aggressive. How did you remain so peaceful? And that's a perfect opportunity to explain it to them. But you would like to do that selectively. You can't just come over the top of them and be like, okay, there's these four noble truths and you know, there's these three universal truths, you know, you gotta, you gotta know all this stuff, like, and just rattle off a bunch of stuff. You might just say, oh, well, it's because I practice the Buddhist teachings and that includes meditation. Have you ever thought about doing that? And they're like, no, I've never thought of that. Well, is that something you'd be interested in? Sure. I'd be interested in that. Okay. Well, uh, how do you learn best? Would you like a video or a book or a podcast? You know, wh what would you like to use to get started? We even have live classes if you'd like to attend. So you're kind of like offering these things out selectively and then you're asking them questions and allowing them to pull the teachings into their life. These teachings can't be pushed into somebody's life because they're just going to be resentful and push them away. So you would like people to be able to pull them into your life. And by you focusing on your practice and people seeing you more and more getting to this peacefulness, like I know you've shared an example of this with me in your personal life with somebody who's very close to you that observed the improvement to the condition of your mind. And that's motivated that person to become more interested in the teachings. And that's how it essentially happens slowly but surely. But as long as there's craving in there, you know, the mind wants it all to happen now. I want everybody around me to be practicing the teachings. That's typically what will happen if there's craving. But instead, you just kind of 
continue to focus on your own practice, be very diligent and dedicated to it. And then slowly but surely, your mind is going to be improving and people are going to observe that. Don't wait for it. Don't expect it. Don't want it or crave it, but just know that it will occur. And as it does, then you'll be in the perfect place with all that wisdom to be able to help them and get directed to the resources that you used in order to produce that quality of mind that they're seeing. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. All right, it doesn't look like we have any more questions, so we'll go ahead and move on to the next chapter. Tonka, would you like to read this one, or is there someone else who would like to read it? Chapter 34? I can read that. Okay. One, one who develops mindfulness of death diligently for the destruction of the taints. Monks, mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless enlightenment, having the deathless as its conclusion. Okay. But do you monk develop mindfulness of that? When this was said, one monk said to the perfectly enlightened one, Venerable Sir, I develop mindfulness of that. Monks, the monk who develops mindfulness of that thus, may I live just a night and a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just a day so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just half a day so that, so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat a single alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to eat half an alms food meal so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow four or five mouthfuls of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who dwell carelessly. They develop mindfulness of that sluggishly to the destruction of the pains. But the monk who develops mindfulness of that thus, may I live just the length of time it takes to chew and swallow a single mouthful of food so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. May I live just the length of time it takes to breathe out after breathing in, or to breathe in after breathing out, so that I may attend to the perfectly enlightened one's teaching. I could then accomplish much. These are called monks who reside determined. They develop mindfulness of that diligently for the destruction of the pains. Therefore, monks, you should train yourself thus. We will reside determined. We will develop mindfulness of that diligently for the destruction of the things. Thus should you train yourself. All right. Thank you, Tonka. 
Here, what the Buddha is getting to is complacency and being sure you understand to eradicate that complacency. Because as long as there's complacency, the mind's going to be dull, lethargic, unmotivated, unenthusiastic. There's not going to be initiative or willingness to do something. You need to arise this enlightenment factor of energy where there is motivation, there is encouragement, there is enthusiasm and an interest to do something, this initiative and willingness to actually go forward in life and do things. Because in the unenlightened state, carrying around that burden that we've been talking about, it puts the mind in this period of lethargic condition. So you need to arise this effort and energy to investigate the teachings and work towards enlightenment. And then the Buddha is describing this here through mindfulness of death. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. And mindfulness of death is being aware that you're going to die. There's no way for you to get around that. All of us are going to die. Anybody that's born, anything that's born, it's going to fade away and it's going to die. The only reason why we die is because we were born. So we all are going to die at some point. And the goal would be to ensure that you're doing the work in this life so that prior to death, you get to enlightenment and then you can enjoy the rest of this life with the enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. And if you can accomplish that before death, then your mind's going to be so peaceful and so joyful. But if you are complacent and you're not aware and keeping in mind that there is going to be this death, then the Buddha describes here how he considers somebody who's not really mindful or aware of this pending death that we're all headed towards. And they're kind of talking about how, you know, if they could just live for a half a day or if they could live just for three or four mouthfuls of food and things like this. And the Buddha is saying, you know, this is kind of like someone who's careless or, you know, they're, they're sluggishly working towards the destruction of the taints or the fetters. Instead, he's encouraging people to instead be sure that they understand that they're headed towards this death and that they should be having this energy, this dedication and this diligence and be determined that they're developing their awareness that they are going to die and it's important to eliminate these fetters before death. That would be the ultimate goal. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom. We'll go ahead with you, Tonka. So how do we exactly develop the mindfulness of that? I understand we should use our life uh, uh, like to the maximum amount of time and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, that we have here to, to reach enlightenment, but how do we, is there, is there, um, uh, exact, um, you shared with me once to imagine uh, our own death, how, how our, our bodies uh, lie down and what our family is doing. Is there anything else that may help in developing mindfulness of that? And I wonder how frequently should we do uh, that kind of uh, exercises? Okay, so what you're talking about is I describe this as reflecting on your own death. And we're going to be talking about that here in a moment because the Buddha describes that, at least mentions it in one of his discourses. Here, this is a little bit different than that which I've explained to you before. 
Here, this is ensuring that the mind is not craving, longing, yearning, holding on to life, but also the mind isn't complacent and just sitting around and dull and lethargic and doing nothing. Instead, bringing the mind to the middle where you're aware of this pending death and you don't allow the mind to become complacent and you stay dedicated and determined and diligent to learning and practicing the teachings. That's what he's talking about here. The next thing that we're gonna talk about in the next chapter, I think it is, or maybe one after that, is we'll talk about reflecting on your death and what that does for you and why that's important. But this here is just being aware of your death so that the mind doesn't become complacent thinking that you can just sit around and do nothing. Instead, stay dedicated, determined, and diligent to learning and practicing so that you can train the mind to get to enlightenment. Okay, I see. Uh, so this is more to be aware of limited time that we have in this life. Exactly. Any other questions? All right, we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 35. Who would like to read this chapter? I can read it. Okay, it looks like Kaldon also raised his hand as well, if you'd like to take a little oh, break, perfect. Tonka. Okay, Kaldon, you can go ahead and read this one if you like. Direct knowledge for a sick one. Monks, if five things do not slip away from a weak and sick monk, it can be predicted of him. In no long time, with the destruction of the things, he will realize for himself with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind. Liberation by wisdom and having entered upon it, he will reside in it. What five? Here a monk, here a monk resides reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving of the dissatisfaction of food, perceiving non-excitement in the entire world, reflecting on impermanence in all conditioned objects, and he has the perception of this well, start, well established internally. If these five things do not slip away for, from a weak and sick monk, it can be in no long time, with the destruction of the things, he will realize for himself with direct knowledge, experience in this very life, the endless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he will reside in it. All right. Thank you. Kadon. So here the Buddha is giving you five things to keep in mind as you move forward and you progress in life even when you're sick and when you're on your deathbed because you can attain enlightenment in this life and enjoy the rest of your life in this enlightened mental state but you can also attain enlightenment at death as well you're not interested in banking on that because if you attain enlightenment at death it means you would have went through life completely frustrated irritated annoyed having all these discontent feelings and you're not sure that you're actually going to attain enlightenment at death anyway the ideal would be to get to enlightenment during the life, this life, so that you can enjoy the rest of this life with the enlightened mind. But the Buddha is saying even when you're sick, essentially on your deathbed, that if you can retain these five things, then this is going to be really helpful for you to be able to get to enlightenment itself. And what he's describing here is reflecting on the unattractiveness of the body. This helps you to eliminate any kind of clinging or craving, holding on to this actual body. And it also helps you to eliminate sensual desire towards others. If you have lust or craving to have a sex with others, this can help you to eliminate that. Perceiving the dissatisfaction of food, this also helps you to eliminate sensual desire. 
by the time the mind gets to enlightenment, you can eat any and all foods. Right now, you might have certain foods you like and certain foods that you dislike and you don't want to eat them because the mind has certain craving through the tongue that it wants certain flavors and it wants those and that's what satisfies the mind. And when it tastes something that it doesn't want or it doesn't like, then it's repulsed by these things. But you would like to get to the point where you just view food as nourishment for the body. Oftentimes what we do is food is to please the tongue, thus please the mind. And we're kind of chasing after certain foods in order to please the tongue and please the mind. And that's because there's central desire there where there's this agreeable contact through the tongue with certain agreeable taste. And then there's disagreeable contact, things that the mind is repulsed by. But if you can get into those situations where you're eating something that the mind typically will find displeasing and just train the mind that, okay, it's just food. It's just nourishing the body. It's impermanent. I'm not here to please the tongue and please the mind. I'm just here to nourish the body. And one of the ways that you can do this is have other people choose your food for you. So if you go to a restaurant, you can just ask somebody to choose the food for you, like the food server. Or if you're living with other people, you can just ask somebody else like, okay, you know, whatever you'd like to eat, that's fine with me. But also when you're in situations where you're eating food and you notice that it doesn't have a particular taste that you like or that you enjoy, you can actually train the mind to just go ahead and keep eating that, even though it might feel a little bit painful to the mind, just continue to do that and train the mind that this food is just to nourish the body and that's it. Perceiving non-excitement in the world, this is helping you to realize that nothing in this material world is worth holding on to. That all of these things in the world, yes, you might grab onto a new pair of shoes or a new phone or a relationship or something like this, and it produces conditioned pleasant feelings in the mind or this excitement in the mind. But those are only temporary. The mind is going to eventually move to these painful feelings because the mind is clinging and craving and holding on, wanting these pleasant feelings that if it gets the objects of its affection, it will get those pleasant feelings. But it's only a matter of time because of those conditioned feelings that it's going to now experience these painful feelings. So if you can understand that these things in the world, there's nothing to hold on to here. Where the enlightened mind, you're going to enjoy things in life. You'll actually enjoy things a lot more than you ever did in the unenlightened state. But there's that certain aspect of the unenlightened mind where it's going to want to hold on to these things and find excitement in them. And it's holding on to this temporary pleasant feelings. So therefore, it can't get to the permanent joy because it's still holding on to these temporary pleasant feelings. So understanding that all these things in the world, there's this non-excitement in the entire world. But as an enlightened being, you know, you're going to still enjoy life. You're going to enjoy life a whole lot more because your mind's not going to be going up and down and up and down throughout your uh, days and your weeks and so forth. And what's helping you to eliminate that is understanding that all these things are impermanent. All of these conditioned objects, whether it's a phone, a computer, a relationship, a certain piece of clothing, a job, or what have you, all of these things are impermanent. They're going to arise, they're going to change, and they're going to fade away. By 
reflecting on impermanence and knowing that all these things are impermanent, then the mind can be trained and it'll be less likely to cling and hold on to these things. That's also what you're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation by cutting off and letting go and bringing the mind back to the breath. But you'll also need to reflect on impermanence of all these material things around you. And then this perception of death can be well established internally. This is what Tonka was just talking about, that if you're having fear of death and you don't want to die, you can actually reflect on your own death and develop this perception of death where before we were talking about mindfulness of death and being aware of the death and that you have only a limited amount of time in this existence where here what you're doing is you're confronting death on your terms because oftentimes when people are dying around you or you're considering your own death there can be grief or there can be fear and this is essentially death sneaking up on you because the mind is craving permanence and wanting mom or dad or grandma grandpa brothers and sisters to be here permanently when they die and you experience this impermanence the mind doesn't like that and it grieves it's not actually love that's causing the grief it's the craving desire attachment holding on wanting permanence the same reason why people grieve at funerals is the same reason why they grieve at weddings because they're holding on to these people wanting them to be permanent. And as long as you're holding on wanting them to be permanent, you're going to be sad and grieve and have other discontent feelings in these situations of weddings and funerals. And even for parents who are sending their kids away to college, this can occur because the mind's holding on and craving permanence. But if you develop this perception of death for yourself or for others, this is you sitting somewhere quietly, envisioning that you've actually died and kind of being like a fly on the wall at your own funeral. And this helps you to develop this perception of death. And you might decide to do this once every two weeks, once a month, until you get to the point where your mind is no longer shaken up by the idea of death. Because oftentimes people avoid this and they try to push it out of their mind. They're not trying to think about it. But then when it sneaks up on you, it feels like someone pulled the carpet out from under you or chopped you off at the knees. And now death is sneaking up on you and you need to deal with this impermanence. And now you can't talk to this person ever again. So if you end up confronting death on your own terms by doing this reflection over a few sessions, you can get to the point where you're completely comfortable with your death and the death of the people around you. So you won't be shaken up by the thought of your own death or the death of people around you. And this will help you to destroy the fetters or the taints or those pollutions so that you can get to this liberation of mind or enlightenment. And the way that you do that is through wisdom, training the mind, not believing the teachings of the Buddha, but learning them, reflecting on them to independently verify them and practice them. That's how you get to wisdom. You're not interested in belief because belief, you don't know what's true or false. And that's why the mind that's having belief can still be shaken up. But a mind that has wisdom, that has learned, reflected, and independently verified, and then is practicing the teachings, the mind having attained final knowledge through your own direct experience, moving to enlightenment, having eliminated those 10 fetters, the mind is now liberated from these strong feelings. And it's liberated by wisdom, by learning the path to enlightenment, and now training the mind. And then here the Buddha says, having entered upon it, he resides in it. What he's talking about here is enlightenment. Having entered upon enlightenment, 
the mind will reside in enlightenment permanently. The mind will no longer experience any discontent feelings. It'll completely be eliminated from the mind. The mind will only be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, never again being shaken up ever because you've eliminated the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up. The enlightened mind is now unconditioned. There's no more conditions in the mind that are causing it to be shaken up. You've eliminated all the 10 fetters. Those are the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up. So when you purify the mind and the mind becomes unconditioned, having entered upon enlightenment, you will reside in enlightenment for the rest of this life. What questions do you guys have on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So we'll just move to the next one, which is chapter 36. Who would like to read this chapter? Okay, go ahead, Tonka. There is no you there. Then Bahaya, when for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heart in reference to the heart, only the sense in reference to the sense only the recognized in reference to the recognized. Then, Bahaya, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. Okay, thank you, Tonka. Here, the Buddha is pointing to the universal truth of non-self. There's that pollution in the mind, that first fetter of personal existence view. This is where the mind in the unenlightened state falsely believes and mistakenly understands that this body and or this mind is who you are. So the mind is clinging to this self-image and self-identity holding on. And now when you hear agreeable things about the self-image or self-identity, you experience these conditioned pleasant feelings. But it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading or disparaging about this physical body or about this mind. And there the mind's going to experience the painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others. So the Buddha teaches in multiple parts of his teachings about the universal truth of non-self, helping you realize that this body and this mind is not you. It's not who you are. There is no you there. There's a physical body and there's a mind that has come together for this life that we call a person, but this physical body, these structures aren't you. It's just bones and tissue and skin and fluid and muscles and organs and things like that, but none of that is you. So the Buddha is saying all there is, is the scene in reference to the scene. So just what you see, you see things, but that's not you. You hear things, that's not you. You sense certain things through the sense bases, but that's not you. You recognize things in terms of looking around, but there is no you in connection with any of that stuff. Anything you see, anything you hear, anything you sense, anything you recognize, none of that stuff is you. And when you get to the point that you've eliminated personal existence view and you realize non-self through practicing the teachings, then the Buddha is saying there's no you there. You're neither here nor there nor between the two. And this is the end of stress. Because as long as the mind has this clinging to this physical body or this mind thinking that this is who you are, 
then you're going to experience discontentedness or stress or these other discontent feelings because it's only a matter of time before you have agreeable contact or disagreeable contact related to the self-image or self-identity. So realizing non-self and eliminating this, you can get to liberation, liberation from these strong feelings. But you'll need to understand this as you develop your practice and then work on it through the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom. Go ahead, Tonka. I always thought that enlightened mind would be uh, the true self. But what you are saying, uh, simply there is no self. But what would be enlightened mind? Not not the ego, not identification with body or the mind, but just that pure self, clear mind, pure mind. It's not a pure self because there is no self there. It's just the mind is now purified. So it's just purified. But that mind isn't you and the body isn't you. It's just the natural state of the mind when it's unconditioned and it's been purified of the conditions that are causing it to be shaken up. But that's not you. It's not who you are. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll move on to chapter 37. Is there someone who would like to read this? All right, Kaldon. I had to mute you, Kaldon. It sounds like the internet connection isn't working. We're getting a lot of spotty signal here. I'll go ahead and read this one, and maybe if your internet connection improves, you can maybe read the next one. So this one is titled... With the elimination of excitement comes the complete destruction of discontentedness. Puna, there are forms recognized by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, centrally enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding on to them, excitement is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Puna, there is the elimination of discontentedness, I say. There are, Puna, sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, centrally enticing, tempting, if a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding on to them, excitement is eliminated in him. With the elimination of excitement, Buddha, there is elimination of discontentedness, I say. So here, the Buddha is cluing you into those conditioned pleasant feelings where the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body and the mind wanting agreeable, pleasing, centrally enticing and tempting things. The mind is having these desirable feelings, longing, yearning through the sense bases and trying to hold on to these things in order to get those conditioned pleasant feelings. So if you observe those conditioned feelings arising, 
and you can observe them as bodily sensations and cut them off and let them go there, then you're not going to experience the conditioned painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, and others. So the enlightened mind, you're going to be enjoying life, but you're not going to have conditioned feelings. You're not going to get so excited when you get a brand new pair of shoes, and then when they get stolen or they get broken or muddy or cut or torn up, you'll be angry or frustrated. Instead, it'll be like, oh, great, a new pair of shoes. Let me go get a new pair of shoes. I need a new pair of shoes. All right, I've got the new pair of shoes. Perfect. Now what's next? Instead of, oh, my goodness, my new pair of shoes. I've got to clean them every day. I got to keep them, you know, so perfect, you know, these kind of things. As long as the mind is allowed to experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings, which includes excitement, then it's only a matter of time before it experiences the conditioned painful feelings. So instead, where you see the mind longing and yearning, you restrain the mind, like the Buddha was talking about at the beginning of the very first chapter we read today. You pull the mind back and restrain it, not allowing the mind to go into those conditioned feelings, where you learn how to enjoy things for the moment, and then when it's over, you can just move on, and you're not holding on and clinging for this experience to last and last and last permanently. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions. Kadon, if you would like to try this chapter 38, maybe we can see if your internet connection is cleared up. Okay. Liberation of the destruction of craving. On seeing a form with the eye, he does not crave after it if it's pleasing. He is not averse of it if it's unpleasing. He resides with mindfulness body established with an, with an immeasurable mind and he understands as it actually is the liberation of mind and liberation by wisdom wherein those evil unwholesome states are, are eliminated without remand. Having thus abundant favoring and opposing whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, he does not seek excitement in that feeling, welcome it or remain holding to it. As he does not do so, excitement in feelings is eliminated in him. With the elimination of his excitement comes elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence, elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth, aging and this sorrow, pain, grief, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentness. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind, he does not crave after it, after it if it's pleasing. He does not become averse to it if it's unpleasing. With the elimination of his comes elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging, elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence, elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentness. Monks, remember this discourse of mind briefly as liberation of the destruction of craving. All right. 
Thank you, Karon. So here the Buddha is explaining the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness that's happening through the six sense bases. When you're learning the Four Noble Truths and early in your practice, you're just learning about craving, desire, attachment in general. And we talk about it as this mental longing and strong eagerness. But now as you move further into your practice, what you start to understand is the mind is longing through these sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind itself. It wants agreeable contact. And the mind is craving through these sense bases for pleasing and agreeable contact. And what the Buddha is saying here is if you do not crave for this pleasing contact, and then when there's unpleasing contact, you're not averse to it, meaning pushing it away. And you reside with this mindfulness of body, meaning you're aware of those bodily sensations that are arising as discontentedness is arising due to the craving, desire, attachment. Then you can cut that off and let that go, which he describes in other parts of his teachings. And that's where you get to liberation of the mind. That if you can be aware that the mind is doing this, and then when you see that it is doing it, you can cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation rather than allowing it to actually continue. So if you abandon this favoring and opposing where I really want all of these things and I don't want any of these things to occur, where you're pushing those away and you're trying to pull and cling and hold on to these other things, when you abandon that and you just realize there's just a whole bunch of impermanence going around, rather than craving and yearning and longing or rather than pushing things away, you just pursue things as a goal, objective, or an interest, realizing all the while that due to impermanence, you're not going to always get these preferences and the things that you like to occur, but that's okay because your mind isn't craving one thing or another. Therefore, you can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As long as you have that craving, desire, attachment, there's going to be certain things that you favor and there's going to be certain things that you oppose. And because of that, you're then going to experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant. So if you don't seek excitement, and you're not chasing and longing and yearning, welcoming in and holding on to those pleasant feelings, if you're not longing and yearning through that, then there isn't going to be this excitement that arises in the mind. As you do not long and yearn through these sense spaces and you restrain the mind and pull it back, then there's not going to be these conditioned feelings of excitement. And saving your mind from those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, then it won't experience the conditioned painful feelings either. So then the Buddha goes into a little bit of what's called dependent origination, which is what we're going to get into in volume five. We'll learn about dependent origination. So rather than cover that here, I'll just discuss it there. And essentially, that's the highest, most ultimate truth that the Buddha explains and shows you what's actually leading to discontentedness and actual rebirth as well. And he's saying here to remember this discourse that this is called the liberation of the destruction of craving, because that's what's going to liberate the mind from these strong feelings when you destroy and eliminate, uproot craving, desire, attachment out of the mind. And that's the Eightfold Path that's training you and helping you to learn how to actually do that. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go on to chapter 39. Is there someone who would like to read this one? 
Okay, if no one is reading, I will read. Okay, go ahead, Cardon. The carrier of the burden. Monks, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking of the burden, lifting that. And what monks is the burden? It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging. What five? The form aggregate subject to clinging, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the, percep the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the volitional formations, choices, decisions, aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. This is called the burden. And what monks is the carrier of the burden? It should be said, the person, this vulnerable, one of such a, of such a name and plan. This is called the carrier of the burden. And what monks is the taking up of the burden? It is this craving that leads to renewed existence accompanied by excitement and desire. Seeking excitement here and there, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. This is called the taking up of the burden. All right, thank you, Kaudon. So here the Buddha is talking about this burden of basically being reborn because here the five aggregates is what he uses to describe what a living being is. So if there's physical form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, or consciousness, this is how we know that there's a living being. And each time the mind is going through an existence, if you don't extinguish craving, desire, attachment, then the fire is still burning. So there's going to be a spark that lights the next fire, and that's the next life. So picking up the burden of this body of these feelings perceptions choices and decisions or volitional formations and consciousness this is the burden the mind's clinging and craving and yearning and longing and then he's saying the carrier of the burden is this person so there's the body and then there's the mind and then the third thing is this person this is the carrier of the burden and then the taking up of the burden is having this craving desire attachment as long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's going to be a continuous rebirth. So by extinguishing craving, desire, attachment, you eliminate discontentedness in this life. You no longer experience any discontent feelings. And then you also won't experience a new rebirth or a new existence to continue to experience continuous discontentedness in some future life. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you eliminate discontentedness and you eliminate the need to go through this all over again multiple times as we've been doing in the past. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions there. So we have this last chapter, 40. Is there someone who would like to read this? Oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead, Kodon. Elimination of craving is called the laying down of the burden. And what monks is the laying down of the burden? It is the reminderless fading away and elimination of that same craving, the giving up and letting go of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the laying down of the burden. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this, the five aggregates are truly burdens. The burden carrier is the person. Taking up the burden is discontentness in, this, in the world. Laying the burden down is joyful. Having laid the heavy burden down without taking up another burden, having taken, 
having taken out craving from its root, one is free from hunger, fully extinguished. Perfect. Thank you, Karon. So here the Buddha is talking about the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, referring to it as laying down the burden. So this burden of craving, desire, attachment that gets carried around on your shoulders in the unenlightened state, you can lay this down, you can eliminate this. And having done so, the Buddha is describing how the mind is going to be peaceful, it's going to be joyful because you've laid this down. In fact, as you go through life and you're developing your life practice and the mind is not yet enlightened, you might notice that certain attachments that are released from the mind, you might notice this joy that springs up in the mind as the attachment has been eliminated. As you've laid down a certain burden, you might notice that the joy comes up. So if you're craving or desiring or attached to any one particular thing, whether it's a relationship or a certain material object or a certain habit or something like this, when you lay that down, you'll feel this joy spring up in the mind. The Buddha calls this maturing and release. He talks about this in other parts of his teachings where you do all this work with breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other factors on the path and it matures and matures and matures and accumulates into the benefit where that attachment eliminated from the mind, it feels like it's released where this maturity of your practice has led to the release of this attachment and you can actually sometimes feel the exact moment when that's occurred and there's this joy that springs up into the mind and then there won't be any further taking up of this burden because with having done so much work to actually train the mind and eliminate these cravings, desires, attachments, and then you seeing the liberation, the freedom of the strong feelings that you experience because of that and the joy that comes up in the mind, you're going to be uninterested in picking this up ever again. So once you lay down individual cravings and they're completely extinguished from the mind, you'll never pick them back up again. But in the process of doing that, you'll see this flickering. Just like you see these flickering glimpses of enlightenment as the mind becomes more and more awake, as the cravings are diminishing, you might go a period of time where you haven't indulged in any particular craving, and then you might do it for a few times or once or something like that. And then you'll go a period of time where you're not doing it any longer. So you have this kind of diminishing and this fading away of certain cravings, and that also flickers. Just like a candle, as it's going out, it'll flicker and flicker and flicker and flicker, and then eventually the candle will go out. That's what happens as you're eliminating certain cravings. And then the same thing is the mind is coming into this enlightened mental state. It's like turning on a light switch. It'll flicker, 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 and then boom, you're gonna experience the mind is enlightened for one year, two years, three years, you don't experience any discontentedness and you'll know that the mind is now enlightened. So you'll experience this as you progress closer and closer to enlightenment and you'll be free from that hunger of that unquenchable thirst of chasing after craving, desire, attachment, because the mind's fully extinguished and having uprooted this cravings out of the mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions. So I'll just end class by thanking all of you guys for joining and thank you guys for reading and asking questions, whether you're attending in Zoom or you're in any of the social media sites where we're live streaming to. Thank you all for your participation and your questions. Oh, it looks like we have an actual question coming in. Go ahead, Tonka. I just wanted to say that I just read in the chat that Max has a question, so I'm not sure if he 
have time to address that. Oh, okay. Let's see, I have a question, not specifically about this chapter, but overall today's class. Sure, Max, go ahead. Yeah, I, so on, uh, I, I guess something that's like pleasing to the mind that we experience now versus experience um, like when we're further along the path or enlightened or whatever, let's say we see like a, a nice car drive by or whatever. And, you know, when we're unenlightened or whatever, we're like, oh, wow, that was a nice car or whatever. Um, how is that different or how is it experienced when we're further along the path? We just notice it as, oh, that's just a car or, or how is, can you explain that, I guess? Sure. From my experience, what you're going to experience in the unenlightened state is, oh, wow, that's a nice car. I want that car or I got to have that car. Like, oh, I just wish I had that car. Right. The mind's craving, longing, yearning for it. In the enlightened state, it's like, oh, wow, that's a really nice car. Right. There's not going to be that added piece of, oh, I just got to have it. Right. That's the craving desire attachment that you experience in the unenlightened state. So you're still recognize things like, oh, wow, that's a really beautiful house or, oh, that's a nice car or, oh, wow, that looks like a delicious piece of chocolate cake. Mm, yeah, that really is delicious. But it's not like, oh, gosh, I got to have this chocolate cake every day or I got to come back to this restaurant all the time or, oh, I wish I had that beautiful house. Why can't I have that beautiful house? I want that house. I want that car. I want that boyfriend. I want that girlfriend. I want that fame. I want that money. I want that title, whatever it is. In the unenlightened state, the mind wants, 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 wants. But in the enlightened state, you observe these things and you know they exist, but your mind doesn't have that longing and yearning followed up by it. Okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, yeah. you're welcome. <laughs> so you got lots of sounds going on there, uh, Max. That's that's cool. Uh, My kids are in the background bugging me. <laughs> are, are they bugging you or is your craving desire attachment bugging you? You're <laughs> An orange snake. <laughs> yeah. So this is good training for your mind to, to have these sounds, right? Because you need to train your mind to not crave silence. And now when there's noise, you can train your mind to not crave one thing or the other. So this can actually be helpful. But back to what I was saying to kind of wrap up class is thank you all for joining. Thank you guys for reading. Thank you for your questions. Those of you guys in the internet world where we're live streaming to those of you guys in zoom i appreciate all your contributions and your dedication to learning and practicing these teachings next saturday we're going to be in the next set of chapters and next saturday we're going to be in chapters 41 through 51 because this book actually ends at chapter 51 so you can read all the way through to the end of the book which will be 11 chapters and we'll go through those next week and then after that we'll move into volume three and we'll do 10 chapters at a time all the way through volume three Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in chapter two of volume one, which is titled Why Study Gautama Buddha's Teachings. We just restarted that program recently as well. So you're welcome to join that and be part of the group discussion that we have there around why study Gautama Buddha's teachings. And then this Wednesday, we're gonna be in part three of our four part series of loving kindness meditation where I'm helping students to build up their loving kindness meditation practice. This will help you to eliminate 
the anger, hatred, and ill will, this fetter that's in the mind and polluting the mind so that you can transform it to be practicing loving kindness meditation. So I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.